Welcome to Women Read Scripture. I'm Mariana Richardson. And I'm Christine Thackeray. And I'm Patricia Ovison. And Patricia, it is so wonderful having you with us. Um, we <laughs> all three are sisters, and so it is so great having you. Would you like to tell a little something about yourself other than you're my sister? <laughs> <laughs> that is the best part of me. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Not sure. Yeah, no, I um, I live here in Utah now, and um, I've got seven children, and I work with children in elementary schools, and... I um, love the scriptures. And that's the most important part. We all love the scriptures. We are going to be talking today about Matthew 15 through 17 and Mark 7 through 9. And there's kind of a theme in the things that we're going to be talking about in terms of the rock of revelation and how we find revelation in our lives. And I was thinking very specifically, since I knew my sisters were going to be with me today, a thought came about our mother and how she received revelation. And someone said they didn't know who our mother was. So we better oh. say she's Geraldine Edwards, because none of us have that name. That's true. <laughs> That's true. She was Geraldine Edwards. And she was a writer, and she loved to write her thoughts and feelings, especially about the scriptures. And in one book, you know, particular celebration, she talks a lot about her thoughts and how she gained a revelatory understanding of what celebration meant. And just to give you a little background, when she was in her early 50s, after everyone was kind of gone, she was crossing the street in Dallas, and she got hit by a car. And after getting hit by a car, it was not a happy ending. I mean, oftentimes we hear those kinds of experiences and they get blessed and miraculously healed and all that kind of stuff and no more pain and they can walk. And mother's story was not that. Instead, it was multiple operations, very painful operations, difficult recoveries. And until she passed on, she was constantly in pain mm -hmm. because of this accident. And yet it was after that that she wrote this book on celebration. And she wrote, Celebration is the conscious decision to live our lives with joy. In the midst of turmoil, pain, and adversity, in bad times and good, joy is the great companion our Heavenly Father intended us to have. To feel joy, however, requires a decision on our part a chosen approach to life, a chosen attitude, a constant awareness. This decision is the necessary beginning to recognizing, feeling, and developing the joy with which Heavenly Father has filled our creation. For me, I know this was a revelation. This was truly a revelatory experience for our mother to understand what celebration really meant in that eternal context. And yet she had to go through a pretty awful tribulation and trial to be able to find that revelation. So I guess my question to you is, how have you found revelations in your life? And also, does there always have to be a trial in order to be able to have that kind of revelatory experience? Do you want, well, I, I can think of so many, but um, it, it was interesting because your first question and your second question kind of, your second question undoes it because there are moments like of great joy where you had those 
moments of connection with the Lord or, or true answers to prayer or things you hadn't even considered. And then you suddenly are like, oh, I need to do that. And so those moments come of true revelation. But in times of trial, sometimes the veil is very, very thin. And um, sometimes those moments can be the most life-changing because they're punctuated by pain. And there's something about our brains that that it it highlights it. And so it stays as part of our life in ways that we wouldn't um, otherwise see. It's funny because last night your husband came downstairs. I'm staying in her house because I live up in Rexburg. And he, we were talking somehow, oh, about the snow. And I told him how I was in that rollover. And he's like, I've never heard that story and um, it was just after I had lost father and then four days um, before had lost my last um, child stillborn. And, um, and it was just a couple months after that I was driving and I got in a rollover. And um, as the car was rolling over, I didn't have my seatbelt on, which I'm a naughty girl. And I felt these arms around me hold me so I didn't go through the windshield. And I really felt like it was father. And then right after that, um, I um, heard someone say, get up, Mom, run. And so I held onto the steering wheel, and I ran in a circle as the car rolled and never had was upside down, although the car rolled twice. And, um, and then uh, was totally fine, not a bruise or anything. So that revelation that there really are angels sorry, around us hit me so strongly, and I will always know that the church is true and that these parts of my family are mine forever. But whether I'm true to the gospel depends on the day. <laughs> so. Well, and I, I want you to know, I was so proud of myself for reading that paragraph without <laughs> starting start to cry. Sorry. Yeah, because I thought, I thought I did a great job. You I did. Want you to bravo. Know. I, Congratulations. I was very proud of myself. <laughs> but I do think that when we become lowly and meek, Oftentimes, oh, that, that's the reason why we need those trials and tribulations to get us in a position where the Lord can come and teach us those revelatory right. experiences. But how much better about. if that happens without them. I agree. <laughs> how much better yeah. if we didn't need it? Well, and it's interesting when you think of joy, too, as being a byproduct, not something that we're working towards. You know, it's kind of like you have the trial, and that brings you closer to the Savior and and um, brings you more, um, you know, gives you a spiritual experience. And then the byproduct of that later may be joy. It doesn't mean you're necessarily experiencing the joy right away, but um, later. We have hope. <laughs> yeah. We have right. hope that that joy mm -hmm. will come. Yeah. Well, I know that, that Peter definitely had some, some questions, and the Savior asked him a very specific question about who he is. I know, Patricia, you're going to talk about that. Whom say ye that yes. I am? Yes, I um, I love these two questions he asks. And um, I think the Savior in these scriptures, he is doing what he does so well, which is being his the master teacher that he is and engaging his audience and asking a question that, is like a one-size-fits-all question. You know, everyone needs to ask themselves the two questions that the Savior asks the disciples in these scriptures, which he says, um, 
whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? So it's like an interesting beginning question, like, what are people saying about me? Mm-hmm. And then to follow up with the question of, and, but whom say ye that I am? And um, so just in context, um, President Nelson talked about this scripture um, when he was there in um, Caesarea Philip Philip. And he was talking about how uh, he quotes about the area that they were. Um, He says, there was a mountain at the base. There is a mountain at the base of a mighty rock from which water seems to be flowing. So this is right where he was asking the questions. Mm -hmm. These cascades comprise one of the three major headwaters of the River Jordan, literally the liquid lifeline of this country. As Jesus was preparing to conclude his mortal ministry here, he, tr- he trained his future leaders of his church. Could it be that the Savior brought his disciples to this spot to teach the lesson that this majestic mountain symbolized the rock of Christ from whom revelation would flow? Revelation to bring light and life to them, just as that flowing water of the River Jordan nourish- nourishes Israel. So I think it's so cool that President Nelson... Um, quoted this in his talk in 1989 called Why This Holy Land. Um, um, you know, having visited the Holy Land and and making that um, sort of like, I love it when nature sort of tells the story of what is happening. You know, that, that these waters were flowing, showing um, the waters of revelation to these disciples while he was asking him this question. Wow, and you've been there, right? Because that rock uh, is not. huge. It's like two, three times, I mean, it's huge. So thinking about the rock being like that, like the rock of Gibraltar, as opposed to... A tiny little rock. Yes. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. It is amazing. Wow. And such a cool place to ask this question. And also, um, he would have had to bring them there. You know, it was out of the way. Oh, it's it wasn't in the middle yeah. of nowhere. And so it was so deliberate, you know, like everything he does was so deliberate. And I love that. And um, but in the first question, he asks, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? Um, it's interesting how he phrases son of man. I don't know um, what you guys think of that title. Interesting. I know I've read about it, but nothing's coming. <laughs> well, we see that phrase very specifically in the Moses chapter one in the Pearl Great Price. Mm-hmm. And as we, we think about that, he truly is the son of capital M man. Right. But not the son of lower But I thought it was man. Satan that was the one that says, oh, thou son of man. Well, uh, but he has that title yeah. as well yeah. and realize that he's talking specifically because about the world, men. you know, right. the yes. way the world looks at it. And, it's, and so it's, it's two it's different ways of looking at it. It's also talking about son of the man of holiness. Exactly. The title of Emmanuel. Uh, and it, the first Our time it's actually Father, used, yes, the first time it's actually used is in Daniel um, chapter 7, verse 13, uh, when he's talking about behold one like the son of man and then in the old testament it's used quite a bit mm-hmm. always referring to a heavenly divine son mm-hmm. of man wow. um <clears throat> so 
it it's interesting because it relates so um, clearly to Peter's response, which is, "Thou art Christ, the Son of the Living God." Oh. You know, and that's just such a cool, you know, connection. That is so that, awesome. a clarification it's because that living, yeah. So I do want to make a clarification mm-hmm. on Moses one, when we see that the, Satan uses that title. Mm-hmm. Everything is lowercase. Yes. It's son of man, son, little s, right. little m. Mm-hmm. And so realize that it's a completely, but it's a completely different title right. than the son, capital S, and right. M yeah. as capital M. When the Savior uses it, though, he does use the lowercase m. It's capital S, lowercase m. But, um, but yes, for sure, they mean the opposite, which is, right. you know, really interesting. Um, I like in verse 14 how when the disciples respond about what people say of him, mm-hmm. they say, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some say Elias, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And I love this because it's so human, that idea or level of devotion or sort of their will willingness of people to say, I know something good is there. You know, he's a revolutionary type, so he's kind of like John the Baptist. He's, you know, he's definitely a prophet type, and they're admiring of him. Right. It's it's a great, it's a kind of devotion, but they're not quite there. They don't quite understand the level of devotion that they're, um, or they're not ready to give that level of devotion. And I think that's interesting because it totally applies to today. You know, like people's willingness to say who Jesus was. There's many people who, what would Jesus do? You know, they love, they love talking about him as a prophet or as a teacher, as a master teacher, but yet not, not ready to say what Peter says. Yes, yes. Um, And then the last question. I mean, thou whom, whom say ye, which is a plural you. That I am. So he's asking all the disciples, Mm -hmm. and then Peter is responding for all of them, and um, he says, "Thou art Christ, the Son of the Living God." But then the most important part is Jesus explains to him how he knows that, and he said, "Blessed art thou, Simon, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven." So I love that because it's further questions of. You know this thing, but how did you know it? And explaining how you knew it. And for me, that's such a like a huge part of our family discussions is because um, epistemology is kind of like what my family is obsessed with, sort of like <laughs> how can you know something? Right. When does it become knowledge? And um, so many of our family's discussions are um, you know, I have children that are not members of the church, and so many of them have issue with that concept of knowledge when it becomes knowledge. But I think it's so wonderful that even in philosophy, the that the four bases of knowledge, the first one is divine revelation. Mm-hmm. That can get you knowledge. And I think we just recognize that and... Um, and then you can also have knowledge from experience, from logic and reason, and from intuition. But all of those things can get you that knowledge that um, Peter was able to receive. And I don't know um, what you guys, if you guys have had those kind of debates in your home about, um, you know, how do you know? You know, that 
from the Book of Mormon. You know, it's it's the ultimate antichrist thing is how can you know? And he's saying you can know this because the Father told you it, you know. Well, and, and I think those of us who've had that spirit of revelation in our lives know that in many ways you know it more than you know because of your senses. You know, you have such a firm conviction and have had such profound experiences that those experiences, you know that even more than I know that this table is here in front of me. Uh, you know, it becomes something that's so a part of my soul and who I am. Yeah. But that is a journey. Yeah. And I think that's uh, kind of goes with those two questions that we were talking about. You know, the first question is a lot of these people who, you know, what are they saying about me? And all of them haven't had that experience yet, like Peter and the disciples had. Yes. Yep. So I'm not, oh, my brain is going crazy because, and I'm debating whether even to say anything, but um, I just remember when um, years ago, it's just coming out. You can delete it if you want. <laughs> but, um, oh, when um, our brother decided to leave the church, it was so horrifying to me because I'm closest to him in age. And um, I remember I ran upstairs to my sons who were all asleep in the room, and I sat beside them. And I held their hand and I said, just tell me, look in my eyes and tell me where you feel. And their ages were, um, one was 14, one was 12, one was 10. And then I had a baby. Um, but the it was funny because the 14-year-old said to me, when hands were laid on my head to get the priesthood, I felt a power go through me that I'll never be able to deny. Mm -hmm. And I know mm -hmm. it's true. And when I turned to Marcus, I said, what do you think? And he said, I feel like when people say the truth, it like echoes, like I can feel it. And so I just feel it. Like I haven't had that kind of experience, but I just feel it. And then George, kids just ate. And here's his mother, tell me what you think. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, I don't know, but... I am open and I'm saying my prayers. And when the Lord's ready, I'm sure I will. I love but, that progression. Yeah. Wow. It was so unique. Wow. And and I was like, well, live your own lives. I love you. I'll direct you. We're going to. But it was, it was interesting because I do think each one of us have our own path yeah. of how to get there. When you said, do you have those discussions about how do you know something's true? Yeah. They didn't even bring that up, but we don't have that intellectual depth. No, no, no. <laughs> we just, just kind of play. <laughs> but what you just did was you were exactly what the Savior was doing. You know, you went to your sons and you asked them, and you I know, said, how? How do you know, do you know who the Savior is, you know? And well, and along with that, as we think about why do we know and why should we care, you know, that kind of goes into other questions, and that leads us to the priesthood. And mm -hmm. why w should we care in terms of covenants and the keys of the kingdom? You know, I think that's also another discussion. Oftentimes people will be like, well, you know, I believe that he's a great teacher and that's all I need to know to follow his teachings. But we're going to talk about how it takes us to a different level when we start talking about priesthood power, keys, and covenants. Well, it's fascinating to me that this is part of the same discussion. That once he said, you know, 
that um, that it's upon this rock. Mm-hmm. We and we considered that it was revealed into the that it's the rock of revelation. But then right after that, the next line it says, "I say also unto thee that thou art Peter upon this rock." I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against thee, against it. Sorry, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so, at that same point, that the church is going to be built upon revelation and upon these keys, mm-hmm. and these keys are are, are so important. And I never realized when I sat back, we see the picture of Christ um, ordaining his apostles. And so I just assumed that's when the keys were given, because when you teach it. But I didn't realize when the keys were actually given to Peter. Do you know when they were given to Peter? Wasn't it right after this? On the Mount of Transfiguration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In 17, chapter 17. Right. But um, I was confused because I was going and reading every little bit and it's not clarified in the Bible. So I was reading everything else and it's not clarified, but it was in the teachings of Joseph Smith and in the history of the church. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those that has been canonized through later um, support, but this is from the teachings of the presence of the church. It says, at the Mount of Transfiguration, the Savior, Moses, and Elijah gave the keys of the priesthood to Peter, James, and John on the mount when they were transfigured before him. So, um, and I'll give you that uh, reference in uh, the notes because to me that was important. I had never heard that before, and it was in the Come, Follow Me manual too. So, um, well, and think about how it it is exactly what happens in Latter-day, in our Latter-day scripture, and that we right. also have the same thing but it happens in a temple where I think it's interesting here. We're on the Mount of Transfiguration, a temple situation where we also have it, the Kirtland temple where, where they're given those same keys. But the details we're not given. No. And so just like in this, that sacred passing of those keys and is it something is that isn't passing. recorded. So yeah. it's got to be sacred to that point. Mm-hmm. But the the basis of having keys of authority, of having authority, the keys of the kingdom, is so essential. One of the things that really impressed me is how often you see Peter, and Peter in those um, sculptures always has the keys. That's how you know it's it's a picture of Peter, and that he has those keys of authority is so essential. I loved um, in in Peter's time. Sorry, my nose. <laughs> But in Peter's time, we, um, oh, the keys, the church was only one church. And so it wasn't, Mm -hmm. I don't think, well, I say that it was as confusing because you had the Sadducees and the Pharisees, you had all the different flavors. Mm -hmm. And then you had the same faith, but that had the authority through Christ because that authority had been lost. And so it is very similar to how we live today, that we have the church that has that authority base, and then you have other people that believe in Christ, that believe in the Bible, that have beautiful faith, but they don't understand the keys or the power of those ordinances and that authority. I think um, the idea of keys is such a beautiful concept, and because we use keys more often, I love the concept of keys in a car that you can have the cars sitting all there, but without the keys, you can't use them. 
And so, and if you did, you'd be arrested. So <laughs> in the same way, those keys are the ability to actually utilize the ordinances we've been given, and they have to be given through those proper keys. Um, I, uh, oh, I was just going to read this quote from, um, and I was looking where it's from, and it's from uh, the Bible Dictionary, and it says, keys are the rights of the presidency or the power given to man by God to direct, control, and govern God's priesthood on the earth. Priesthood holders called to positions of presidency receive keys from those in line of authority over them. Priesthood holders use the priesthood only within the limits outlined by those who hold those keys. And the prophet, the president of the church, holds the keys for the whole church. And so I think that idea is really important that it has to be through that proper authority that those lines were followed. Um, and I, I hesitate going to that that we were talking about in the car, but it's just going to happen. So I think anciently those keys weren't as much questioned as they have been recently by um, people in the church that only men can hold the keys and not women. And so as women read the scripture, we're going to have this discussion. <laughs> and that's why I've been balking. I, I did want to point out section 110, you know, what I was yes, discussing. Yes. So if we look at verse 16, it says very specifically, therefore the keys of this dispensation are committed into your hands. And by this you may know that the great and dreadful day of the Lord is near even at the doors. For me, that's also significant to realize that when the keys have been given in this dispensation, we know that they will be here and stay here until the second coming of the Lord. Right. They will never leave the earth again. And what a wonderful blessing and hope. And I mean, I just thrill at the fact that we have these keys now, that I know that these covenants are eternal, that I make with my family and make with the Lord and make with my Heavenly Father. That's absolutely true. And the... Oh, yeah, and it's also kind of an interesting historical thing that here the keys are coming back. You know, they've been away from the earth, and during the Savior's time and Peter's time, then here the keys are here, but then we'll leave again. You know, it's like this, it's this period of time that... And it's not a very long mm -hmm. period. It's not very long. No, the keys not. were restored. Right. That's true, before they, they were taken again and then right. restored at this time. And maybe then that fact that at least Peter... Um, having receiving keys that in his lifetime he'd never witnessed really being used by other people or any sort of organization. I mean, I just think we have years and years of, you know, watching that process happen and understanding um, he would have been such a baby when it oh, came to understanding that, you know, that burden and, and that responsibility. Yeah. Right. Right. But I they agree. did have the ordinances. And I do have to say the ordinances we have today and knowing that they last through a lifetime is such a big deal that that it's only through those keys that we can be sealed forever as a family. It is only through those keys that our baptism lasts beyond this life. Mm -hmm. And so that that things that go beyond. And so I do that is interesting because not understanding how that authority works may be part of why people question or why people want to change it, because they don't understand where it comes from, that it comes from God, that he's the one that makes those decisions. Exactly. And so we have to bow to that and be submissive to that and not try and shift or change them, because they're not of this world. 
they're up beyond this world because you see that happen very much. And women do too. Women have to also understand that and live within those those bounds and be happy about it. You know, right. I think that's also a positive thing is that we need to be cheerful in the opportunities that we do have, which are many because of the priesthood power. That's your own. That's name. true. Well, Dallin H. Oaks was talking about the sisters and the priesthood, and he said, well, the sisters have not been given the priesthood. Um, it has not been conferred upon them. That does not mean that the Lord doesn't give them authority. A person may have authority given to them, a sister or to her, to do certain things in the church that are binding and absolutely necessary for our salvation. So through those keys, we are given responsibilities with that authority. And I was um, saying the priesthood is a lot like those three-foot spoons, and I, I was I laughing. Know, I, I love it. The parable of the three-foot <laughs> spoons. The parable of the three-foot spoons. So there's a story that um, someone went down to hell, and he saw everyone with these three-foot spoons, and they said, we're starving because we can't feed ourselves because they, <laughs> they could scoop up, and then they went up to heaven, and they still had the three-foot spoons, but everyone was feeding each other. And someone that has the priesthood authority can never put their hands on their own head and bless themselves. It always has to be. I would to hate another. to be fed. <laughs> I would be. <laughs> So you're saying you would be in hell? Is that, that would be no. terrible. That sounds <laughs> like starve. That sounds can't. terrible. That sounds like it's the yeah. wrong place. But that idea that it is that the priesthood yeah. keys are given to serve. They aren't given. Yeah. There's no yeah, benefit right. to yourself right. of I having agree. them. Mm -hmm. I agree. But we have a role, and our role is important. And um the prophet talked about our role. President Nelson said, Dear sisters, your ability to discern truth from error, to be society's guardians of morality, is crucial in these latter days. And I love that idea that we're the guardians of morality. And even, I think, the guardians of the priesthood, that we raise our sons and that we assist and support. Um, and we depend upon you to teach others to do likewise. Let me be very clear about this. If the world loses the moral rectitude of its women, the world will never recover. And so we as women do have an equal or even greater responsibility to support, to use, to love the priesthood. And I don't think we need to say greater. You know, I think it is... Uh, right, same. we don't need to compare. You know, we don't need it's to compare. Just... <laughs> We've talked about that before. But it is a vital, and I think that's right. the word we need to use. That's it's a true. Vital right. role. It is something that is necessary, and in many ways, as necessary as the priesthood power, because, as he said, we are the ones that that enable that priesthood power to continue forward by being the guardians of morality. Mm -hmm. oh, I love that. Yeah, I do too. Well, as we continue. Um, we have another great story here that's I'm going to read from Mark 9, where we have somebody who's questioning, well, and he's not really questioning his faith, but he's asking, help thou my unbelief, which is a pretty powerful question, especially given what we're going through in today's world and society. How many people have questions and are asking that same question? But kind of giving you some background, because I think some of the background tidbits of this story are also very helpful as we talk about it. And so we have um, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. This is kind of a very public time. So the Savior is out in the midst of people. There's a lot of people around him. And this one of the multitude, so like I said, a lot of people, calls out and says, Master. 
I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And he said, and he goes on and talks about this poor son, how he teareth himself and foams at the mouth and throws himself in the fire and all these terrible things that happen to this poor boy. But then he says something interesting. He says, I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Now, I was thinking about myself as a person of faith. When we get into a situation where people of authority can't do something, how that makes us even question our faith more, where we have a, a, a priesthood leader that, and we completely acknowledge that we are all human and that we all have frailties and we all make mistakes and we can't all be at that spiritual level where we're able to perform miracles. And that's kind of what happened with these disciples. And he said, and the Savior answers him and says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought this son unto him and he saw him and he saw how the Spirit teared this poor boy. You know, and he, he asked him, he says, well, how long has this been happening? And he said, since he was just a little child. And then he said, and, and this is the part that just brings kind of um, tears to my eyes. He says, Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Now, when I first read that, the thought came to my mind, all things, all things. How often do we have that kind of faith where we can look at our lives and say, all things are possible if I believe it. And then we have this beautiful statement by the father. He cried out. And I love the, the fact that he cried out. He didn't just say it. He cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe so I'm crying, and, and those tears are real. Help thou mine unbelief. How beautiful is that statement? You know, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. So I have a question for you. What helps your unbelief? All of us have questions. All of us have things that we, we have questions about in terms of the gospel, in terms of our lives, how come things haven't happened in our lives. But what helps your unbelief? I think that I have never looked at that in context. Mm -hmm. That after the apostles trying to heal his son and not being able to, that his unbelief was in those apostles. And so that is fascinating to me because you know that experience where things have, have not go, gone the way you expected or someone's let you down. or And then you wonder because it's through people that so often things are administered. So that idea of, of help me heal from this experience in addition to healing my son. But um, I do think that, that, that often we have to wait on the Lord mm -hmm. for those moments of healing. And so we have to also almost ask, so just like he said, help thou my unbelief, he was asking for that help. And when we acknowledge where our potholes are, it's much easier to have them filled. Well, I did want to say Elder Holland gave such a beautiful talk, specifically talking about this experience. And he uses this father as an example and gives us three things 
that we can learn from this. And I did want to just touch on the three because I do think that all of us can relate to help thou my unbelief, that statement. And the first observation that he makes is that when facing the challenge of faith, the father asserts his strength first and only then acknowledges his limitation. So he says, Lord, I believe. That's the first thing that comes out of his mouth. The second observation is in a variation of the first, and that he says, when problems come and questions arise, do not start your quest for faith by saying how much you do not have, leading, as it were, with your unbelief. So he says, you know, we don't have to make up the fact that we're having problems. You know, we, we don't have to pretend about our faith, you know, that we can be honest about our questions. But he says, be as candid about your questions as you need to be. Life is full of them on one subject or another. But if you and your family want to be healed, don't let those questions stand in the way of faith working its miracle. Can you imagine what would what would have happened if when the Lord asked that question, the answer was, help thou my unbelief, Lord, I believe. Right. It would have been a different, it's a different answer, right? Or show me a sign and then I'll believe. And then I'll believe. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's that's pretty strong. The last observation Elder Holland makes is, when doubt or difficulty come, do not be afraid to ask for help. And that goes right along with what you were saying. Yeah, well, and I think, too, him him saying that also recognizes it's it's humility, too, you know, which is which is essential here as well, is it's saying, I can't do it all. Whereas even if he had said, I believe, without any caveat to it, it, it it's almost like that's not that's never all of it, you know? It, there's, I love that. It's a, there's always that other <laughs> side to it of, that we can't, we can't get there all the way and, and grace and all of that. So. Well, there are so many prophets that have talked about this, and I think we're going to hear even more from our general authorities about this questioning and how can we handle it and what can we do to strengthen our belief because we live in a world now that constantly makes us question. And so we have to deal with how we do it. But I love what Elder um, L. Whitney Clayton said. Because it kind of, like him. I, I do too. <laughs> he said, each day we decide what we will do and what we will not do among a myriad of alternatives. And all of us, I mean, that's just the way we live right now. When we choose to obey the commandments cheerfully as our first priority, we simply go and do the things the Lord has commanded, even when we are weary, trusting that he will help us as to do exactly as he asks. As we do, the Lord helps our unbelief, and our faith becomes powerful, vibrant, and unshakable. And I wanted to return back to my our mother and her statement about celebration in that, like I said in the beginning story, it wasn't a happy ending. It wasn't, you know, she didn't have the healing because the boy is healed after this, and the boy is, you know, does rise up and doesn't have the problems anymore. But sometimes, even if we aren't healed, I do feel our mother had this revelatory experience that did heal her inside and helped her understand how to celebrate after, even though she wasn't healed physically, she was healed 
spiritually, mm-hmm. which is the most important healing, right? Yeah, I keep hearing like just keep swimming from Dory. <laughs> from Dory, <laughs> you know. I mean, that, but that <laughs> that idea of you have to you have to keep doing the right actions yeah. through those trials, yeah, and have hope for the joy, mm-hmm. hopefully, eventually. Mm-hmm. Well, um, another thing that we're talking about is how that happens in terms of our mouths, in terms of what we say. And I know, Patricia, you were going to talk about that. Yeah. I do think that goes right along with what we were just saying in terms of what Elder, you know, Elder Clayton said, that um, we have to be careful in terms of the way we talk about our questions. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I think the background for this scripture uh, was also interesting to me because um it's another time where Jesus is really getting after the Pharisees and they had been criticizing the disciples and Jesus at the time. Um, Right before he says this, the Pharisees had been criticizing them for them not doing the correct washing. Um, If you'll remember on that part, the, they were challenging Christ and his disciples because they had been ignoring the ritual washing before eating. And so, um, with COVID, I really feel like we now have a ritual. <laughs> yeah, we washing do. Before we have eating. a ritual washing. That's right. So, in response to that, Jesus is quoting Isaiah when he says, "Ye hypocrites, well did um, Isaiah the prophet of you saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me." But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines and the uh, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So, I mean, initially, um, when you read that, um, my mind went straight to the fact that that was a scripture quoted in the Sacred Grove, and it was in fact the first scripture quoted by the Savior in the Sacred Grove, um, and so. You know, it just gives it such power. Um, and in Joseph Smith's history, um, the way it is stated by the Savior is he said, um, in answering to which sect should I join, he says, I was answered that I must join none of them for they were all wrong. And the personages who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. From me, They teach for doctrines the commandments of men. But then he goes on to kind of explain it where he says, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. So that's wow. just a cool sort of sidebar that's not in um, the New Testament. And I love that, that they deny the power thereof. Which is and like that they have a form of godliness. Because Satan yes. took the glory to himself rather than glory to being to the Father. Yes. And so they're not, you know, having the glory to the Father. They're trying to yeah. build their own glory, which is interesting that it's that same piece. Yeah, yeah really, it's it's a super harsh rebuke is, is what it comes down to. Because I, I was thinking about trying to apply it, and I had a hard time applying it because I think it's... I think we talk a lot about good, better, best now in our church. And this isn't a good, better, best situation. This you is know, black and white. This is black yeah. and white. And um, also I think that um, <clears throat> to be hypocritical um, in, this, in this sense where you have to be doing some sort of action 
that on the outside, physically, you're trying to look to be virtuous. But on the inside, it has no virtue. And that's kind of, that's, that's pretty far out there. And so I was trying to think of, um, it was a fun exercise, trying to think of how do I do this? You know, am I guilty? Oh, no. I don't think yeah. that's fun. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know if I would say. Fun but I, it, it would be interesting. I, you know, and the funny thing is um, I, this, this became a meta experience for me because <laughs> what I did was I could come up with things for other people. Oh. which is so oh. funny because then that like says worse about me, no. right? The fact that I'm like, no, but it's oh, I've seen this see. person do I that, know. you know? So I'm able to... Um, well, in the hypocrisy, we've talked a lot about hypocrisy with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that's one of the things that they like to do too, right? Yes, I mean, they like exactly. to point out was, other people. So, doing it. I'm so thinking, I don't mean to call you right. a Sadducee I'm no longer going to do that exercise. Oh, but no. it's funny that I was like, but the first one that came to mind was, um, do we, because I hesitate, I am, I don't enjoy getting dressed up for church. Some people enjoy that. I would rather wear sweats every day. Mm -hmm. I enjoy. You look beautiful today. Well, I'm just saying my goal <laughs> with getting dressed is to be able to sleep in it, exercise in it, and go to church in it. Oh. And it's very hard to achieve all three things with the same yes. outfit. I, I agree. I'm a dress. I yeah. So I'm just saying my, one of the things that came to me was sometimes, you know, people will. Um, maybe they're getting ready for church and they're getting ready for church for sort of like a show experience, you know, mm -hmm. that would be kind of hypocritical. But that was a, that was my example of pointing fingers, oh. which I will not do. <laughs> so, um, but the other thing I wanted to talk there about. there isn't evil mm -hmm. in their heart. And that's the difference. Yes. It is. So it's not it truly is. evil. Yes. Oh, was it evil I, no, when no, they just no, want well, to be better than other people? But yeah, well, I, I would maybe put there a little gray the there. You know, yeah. But yeah, you okay. really only have But I was saying if you're but. trying to do good, but you're not all the way there, that's one thing. But you're right. If you're doing it for show, if there's pride. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That I don't live but the, I live in Idaho. The other cares. part, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Idaho, they don't have that problem. Um, the other part that they that they add in the Joseph Smith history is they teach for doctrines the commandments of men, and I love that idea of um, that when they're hypocritical, they're teaching the commandments of men. And uh, this led me to uh, Elder Christofferson quote from his um, talk that he gave in the last one. Um, what was it called? Where it's like joining, being a, I can't remember the name of his one. Uh, it said, today, unfortunately, consecrating oneself to a cause or sacrificing anything for anyone else is becoming countercultural. So, oh, wow. Um, I thought that's, that's an interesting, that's an interesting thought. Sort of wow. thought of this whole hypocrisy thing is that whole, like, I sacrifice now is sort of countercultural. You know what I mean? Like, because you need to take care of yourself. You know, that's like a like big in line. Order for your children to be happy, you have to be truly, truly happy. Yes, which I believe. I'm not going to sit here and say self care isn't no, real. Self care is self care important, is important. real. I am an advocate of mental health, right. but I also see how mental health and um, and this gets me into the sidebar of you are happier when you are sacrificing and when you are serving and um so 
I know that's a side. It's an interesting no. balance, uh-huh. right? I mean, it is a balance, and we had to be careful not to go on the self care side too much. Yeah, for your or the own sacrificing, sake. right? For your much. own yeah, sake, it needs to be both. Right. Yeah, and I just loved that that yeah, concept really he had. Um, the next scripture that leads the, into that one is the um, <clears throat> is further down where it ta- on seventeen and eighteen where it says, "Do not." Ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draught. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile the man. So it's again another scripture about like physical and internal, you know, like what are we, what are we doing physically and sort of just that, that purity of action. Right. You know, and making sure that our hearts are in the right place and how important that was to the Savior. Like, it feels to me in his ministry that some of his most upset moments were for hypocrites. You know, like that just that idea that they would act, you know. The form of godliness. Yes. They'd have that form. And also taking away from a sacred experience mm-hmm. by defiling. I guess my head's going, well, it, in his day, the Pharisees had such a clear line of what was appropriate behavior. There was the things that were clean and unclean. They expanded it to a certain point. And so you could eat things that could make you unclean, that would make you shunned from society. So it... And Christ is saying you have to worry more about what's inside than yeah. about these external that was rules super that have beyond. That was a super But I'm thinking today, too. what are the equivalent things that we have that people think are the right things to do where we stop being so external and we try to be more of the heart? And I think of like visiting teaching was so much easier when you could check it off, when you right. knocked on the door, this month. you leave something check there and you're month. done. And you're like, mm-hmm. I'm the best visiting teacher every month, got it planned. But now we're supposed to minister. Right. So we're supposed to like know them and love them when we do like a text thing. And when you go to lunch, you say, okay, does anyone else want to go? And I love you, Lisa. I'm not saying this about you, but <laughs> no, just kidding. yeah, yeah. Listen, but you yeah, invite everybody so that you feel like you're still ministering which is so much more which is from the heart as opposed to when it was so easy to be a hundred percent visiting teaching used to be like tithing like you could just wouldn't it be horrible if the prophet said okay from now on tithing's over and you give what you can like ministering then i'd be like oh no now i have to actually think about it i can't just like do the automatic draft i have to you know so it's easier sometimes when those externals are that measured. Would be, what that would end up being is law of consecration. I know, exactly. but yeah. it terrifies exactly. me because yeah, we're already seeing be. it with ministering. And the yeah. difference is harder. Yeah, Well, it and is that for goes sure. right along with the next thought about faith can move <laughs> mountains. And, and, <laughs> and having that faith means that we don't bind ourselves to those checklists. I know. You know, that but faith so is going much so much here. beyond I know. You know what the checklists are. So I I was interested in that. And this is at the very end when he's censuring the um the apostles for not being able to uh heal the um the child. And when they couldn't and he says about their faith, he said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall um say unto this mountain 
Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you, which you had read. And so I was curious when I read that about moving mountains, mm-hmm. how many mountains have actually been moved by prophets? Oh. So this is a trivial okay. pursuit question. We'll see if you get the little piece in All right. Do you know how many? No. I, 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 I know one. we have one. I mean, uh, there was... Enoch during the time of Enoch, there was Zaren. There was you even knew see Dignity. Zaren, who I did not remember was the Mount Zaren. Yeah, I am so impressed. So now I want to. I wish I was still having children because I'd name one Zaren. It would be cool. I know. Yeah, I guess you shouldn't call a girl a mountain. Yeah, yeah, that would be hard. It is cool. But um, yeah, there was the brother of Jared. Right. They removed the mountain when they were leaving, and then there was also Enoch. And it's in Moses 7.13 where he came to paddle against them. He spake the word and the earth trembled and the mountains fled according right. to his command to get away from the evil people. So it was when he was setting up the, the city of Enoch. And those are the only two mountains. So it doesn't happen very often. And in both cases, they were fleeing an enemy. So there was a mm-hmm. purpose to moving a mountain. But the Lord is talking about having enough faith that we could do it if we needed to, not that we would actually do it. Yeah, And so we can have the faith that would make that happen as opposed to really moving mountains, which doesn't happen very often. But um, President Nelson talked about moving mountains, and he said, start today to increase your faith. Through your faith, Jesus Christ will help you, uh, will increase your ability to move the mountains in your life, even though your personal challenges may loom as large as Mount Everest. And he talked about mountains that were in our life And he said, your mountains may be loneliness, doubt, illness, or other personal problems. Oh, wow. And so I do think the thing about mountains is they are so huge, and they've been there forever. Like, they've lasted for a long time. And the fact that they've been there so long is why they sometimes seem insurmountable, because they seem part of the landscape, part of who we are. Um, you're, and then he says that there's five suggestions about how we can increase our faith. And um, the first one is to study. And he said, moving mountains may require a miracle, so learn about miracles. And that was the first one. And then second is choose to believe in Jesus Christ. And you had talked about that, that putting your faith first. And he said, stop increasing your doubts by rehearsing them to other doubters. Don't you love exactly. that? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what Elder Holland We're, talked about. Right, too. that we reach mm-hmm. towards faith. Right. And so our intent is to increase our faith rather to increase our doubts. And then um, to act in faith. And he said, ask your question, ask yourself the question, what would you do if you had more faith? Hmm. So if you had more faith, how would your actions change? And then he said, start doing those actions and your faith will increase as you do them. So, Take it till you make it. Yeah. I guess that's yeah. exactly true. <laughs> Take this step forward in the dark. I mean, we have all those, you know, little uh, phrases that we use that all the time. And those there's a reason we have them. There's a reason why I we know. have them. Interesting. And then um, to partake of sacred ordinances that really we do sometimes have that positive experience until the moment of. And I had a close friend who told me years ago um, that she had... Um, hurt feelings towards another person and um, really it it just was something that was stopping her in every other part of her life and she prayed and she did all these things and she said she was sitting taking the sacrament and she said um, before she took the sacrament 
She just continued that hurt. And when she took it, she just was like cleansed at that moment. It was the ordinance that cleansed her of that hurt. And she said, all of us have different moments when that healing comes. But she'll always remember the power of the sacrament when we really use it to its full extent. And it was moving a mountain. It I was mean, it moving really a was mountain moving in her heart. And so, um, and then the last one is to ask for help. And I love when he says, help thou my unbelief. Right. And so often in our lives when we're really struggling with something, the Lord will put someone in our lives that will help us heal. And so if we ask and open our eyes, the Lord really will send his help. Yeah, and it's good for that person too. It is. It's good for both of you. So um, the mountains in our lives, this is the last thing that um, uh, President Nelson said. The mountains in our lives do not always move how or when we would like, but our faith will always propel us forward. I love it. And that. so we'll, we'll have improvement. It may not be the whole mountain, but it may be just something. We may have the power to get up there. I love that. Well, we're going to end our time together today talking about the leftovers of faith. <laughs> you know, and I kind of love this concept of the leftovers of faith. And and we, first of all, get this. Uh, we're going to do it in two different contexts. First, in the feeding of the 4,000, which is different than the feeding of the 5,000, and talk about the leftovers that happened there. But then also we're going to talk about the leftovers with the, the Gentile woman who was asking the Savior and for healing her, her daughter and asking for the crumbs and what that really meant. So as we look, basically this, this is found in Mark 9, where this is a different place and a different group of people than the one when we talked about the 5,000. And here they were, um, this happened in the Gentile Decapolis area, region, southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so this, we talked about how the Sermon on the Mount would have been given to disciples, people that were followers of him. This would have been people that were Gentiles. And so it was a, a different crowd. And so the Savior had this multitude being very great, having nothing to eat, and it had been three days. They've been fasting for three days. They've been following him. And it is amazing. And finally, the disciples said, um, well, how we have to feed these people. You know, they're starving. And the Lord says, how many loaves have ye? And they said, seven. And then we have a similar experience where he took the seven loaves, gave thanks, break, and then gave it to the disciples to set before them. And then they also had a few small fishes, and he did the same thing with the fishes. And they did eat and were filled, and they took up the broken meat that was left, and there were seven baskets left. So we have leftovers. And I think it's pretty powerful when we think about those leftovers because the elder Nielsen gave a wonderful talk talking specifically about these leftovers. And he said, um, my grace is sufficient for all men, is what the Savior said. The Savior's redeeming and healing power can cover any sin, wound, or trial, no matter how large or how difficult, and there are leftovers. His grace is sufficient. With that knowledge, we can move forward with faith, knowing that when difficult times come, and they surely will, or when sin encompasses our lives, the Savior stands with healing in his wing, wings as inviting us to come unto him. 
Interesting. So I love that, this idea of, you know, the leftovers, the spiritual leftovers, there are always going to be leftovers, and the Savior always has enough to feed all of us with to spare, you know, to spare, to help us in our lives. But then as we think about this, um, right after there's an interesting story, literally right after this, what happens is they they left, they entered a ship, similar to what happened with the 5,000, and the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. (laughs) And so he charged them, and the Savior just says, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And so the disciples kind of don't know what to make of this. And they reasoned among themselves and saying, oh, is he saying that because we didn't bring bread? (laughs) And then Jesus, discerning their thoughts, he says, why reason ye because you have no bread? Perceive you not yet, neither understand? And then he said, didn't you notice that we break those five loaves of bread and we fed 5,000? How many baskets? full of fragments took ye up. And they said, you know, we had all these leftovers. And so I love that thought that the Savior's trying to remind them that you don't have to worry. I always have leftovers. But then we take that to Matthew 15 when we're talking about this this woman. And sometimes when I've read this story, I'm I'm a little you know, it sounds a little harsh. You know, the Savior's being kind of harsh to this woman. And that we have the, you know, woman from Canaan, and she sees the Lord, and she cries out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. And and the disciples are all saying, um, Send her away, send her away. And he answered, he said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she came and she said, um, she worshiped him and said, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it is not me to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Now, if we, you look at the, the footnote, but also the translation of that word dog, they're really talking about a domesticated small pet that is loved by the household. And so he's really talking about the house of Israel. And that she is a Gentile is this, you know, loved, you know, loved but addition. But not one of the but children. But not one of the children. But she's right? still part of the household. She's, still, she's, not one she's of the still part of the household. Mm-hmm. And she said, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus's answer is one of such love. He says, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. So I wanted to ask, just as we end, how do you make leftovers beautiful in your life? I mean, I love the fact that she, you know, this woman, because of her great faith, was able to make these crumbs that she was searching for magnificent in her own life. And I was wondering how you felt about making those crumbs, those crumbs of faith, you know, grow and become beautiful in your life. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it brings to mind just the concept of abundance, you know, that you're never going to have leftovers unless you have an abundance of something. You know, if you if you have scarcity, even the crumbs are going to be picked up and used, you know, but the fact that the Savior's love teachings, everything it's is so, so abundant. abundant that... Um, 
that's how we can feel about the leftovers is it's just it's they're limitless you know it's like the crumbs the, are limitless. the food is limitless <laughs> and the leftovers are limitless you know it's just that. it's a wonderful thought it's it makes it so we don't have any we don't have to have any meanness about us or about anything we're given um and that's that generosity should just be present in everything spiritual because there is an abundance i love that that's true and I was just thinking the grass is always greener where you water it, that it may start with crumbs, but like the Savior, you know, with those little loaves and fishes, we can expand it as we have faith. And with that faith, it will become more through the Savior. So in addition, that feeling of abundance comes because the Lord can multiply that little bit that we have when we, when we show our yeah. faith like, like she did. And grateful for just a crumb. Yeah. Right. Well... I am so thankful for this discussion we've had about faith, and I hope and pray that all of us can realize the abundance of faith that we have through our Savior, Jesus Christ. So thank you for joining us today. Mm -hmm.